Chapter Twelve, Part Two of Nana by Emile Zola, translated by Burton Rasco. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Twelve, Part Two. I say, murmured Madame Chanteroux, supposing the old countess were only to return. Just fancy her looking on, beholding all these people and all this gold and this hubbub. It is scandalous. Sabine is mad," replied Madame de Jonquois. "Did you notice her at the door? Look, you can see her from here. She has all her diamonds on." They stood up for a moment to look at the count and countess in the distance. Sabine, in a white costume trimmed with some magnificent English lace, was triumphant with beauty, young, lively, and with a touch of intoxication in her continual smile. Mifa, beside her, looking aged and rather pale, smiled also in his calm, dignified manner. And to think that he was the master," resumed Madame Chanteroux, "that not the smallest seat would have been admitted here without his permission. Ah, well, she has changed all that. He obeys her now. Do you recollect the time when she would not alter a thing in the drawing room? The whole house is altered now." But they ceased talking as Madame de Chazel entered, followed by a troop of young men, all of them enraptured and giving vent to their admiration in faint exclamations. Oh, delicious, exquisite, so full of taste! And she called back to them, "It's just as I said. There's nothing like these old buildings when one knows how to arrange them. They look so grand. Is it not quite worthy of Louis the Fourteenth's time? Now at least she can receive." The two old ladies had sat down again, and lowering their voices, they talked of the marriage, which surprised many people. Estelle had just passed in a pink silk dress, still flat and thin, with her expressionless virgin face. She had accepted Dagonet quietly. She showed neither joy nor sadness, but remained as cold and pale as on those winter nights when she used to put the logs of wood on the fire. All this entertainment given for her, these illuminations, these flowers, this music, left her cold. An adventurer, Madame de Jonquois was saying, "I have never seen him." Take care! Here he comes," murmured Madame Chanteroux. Dagonet, who had caught sight of Madame Hugon with her sons, had hastened to offer her his arm, and he laughed. He showed her an amount of affectionate attention, as though she had had something to do with his stroke of fortune. "Thank you," said she, seating herself by the fireplace. "This is my old corner." Do you know him? Asked Madame de Jonquois when Dagonet had gone off. Certainly, he is a charming young man. Georges likes him immensely. Oh, he comes of a most honorable family, and the good lady defended him against a covert hostility which she felt existed. His father, who was greatly esteemed by Louis Philippe, had occupied a prefect's post until his death. The young man had perhaps been rather dissipated. It was said that he was ruined. At any rate, one of his uncles, a rich landed proprietor, was going to bequeath his fortune to him. But the other ladies shook their heads, whilst Madame Hugon, feeling rather embarrassed, kept laying great stress on the honourable position of the family. She felt very tired and complained of her legs. For a month past, she had been stopping at her house in the Rue Richelieu for a host of business matters. So she said, a shade of sadness veiled her maternal smile. All the same. Concluded Madame Chanteroux, Estelle might have made a far better match. There was a flourish of music; it was the commencement of a quadrille. 
The crowd moved to the sides of the room to leave an open space. Light dresses passed, mixed with the dark dress suits, whilst the blaze of light shone on the sea of heads, illuminating the sparkling jewels, the waving white plumes, and the bloom of lilac and roses. It was already very warm. A penetrating perfume rose from the light tools, the satins, and the silks, among which the bare shoulders paled beneath the lively notes of the orchestra. Through the open doors one could see rows of women seated in the adjacent rooms with a discreet brightness in their smile, a sparkle in their eyes, a pout on their lips gently fanning themselves. And guests still continued to arrive. A footman announced their names, whilst amidst the various groups gentlemen slowly tried to find places for the ladies on their arms, standing on tiptoe in search of a vacant chair. But the house was filling, the skirts were packing closer together with a slight noise. There were places where a mass of lace, bows, and flounces barred the way, the wearers politely resigned, retaining all their grace, accustomed as they were to such brilliant crushes. However, out in the garden, in the roseate light of the Venetian lanterns, couples were wandering about, having escaped from the stifling atmosphere of the great drawing-room. The shadows of dresses passed over the lawn as though keeping time to the music of the quadrille, which sounded softer in the distance behind the trees. Steiner, who was there, had just come across Boucarmont and La Valoise, partaking of champagne in the refreshment tent. "'It's awfully swell,' La Valoise was saying, while examining the purple tent and the gilded lances which supported it. "'One could almost think oneself at the gingerbread fair.' "'Yes, that's it, the gingerbread fair.' He now affected to continually poke fun at everything— posing as a young man who was sick of the world and who could find nothing worthy of being looked at in a serious light. "'Wouldn't poor Vendeuvre be surprised if he returned here?' murmured Foucarmont. "'Don't you recollect when he used to be bored to death over there opposite the fireplace? By Jove, no one laughed then.' "'Vendeuvre, don't mention him, he's extinguished,' resumed La Faloise disdainfully. "'He was greatly mistaken if he thought he was going to astonish us with his roasting.' Not a soul talks of it now. He's out of it, done for, scratched. Vendeuvre, talk of another. Then, as Steiner shook hands with them, he continued, You know, Nana's just arrived. Oh, such an entry, my boy. Something prodigious. First of all, she embraced the countess. Then, when the children drew near, she blessed them, saying to Dagonet, Listen, Paul, if you deceive her, you'll have me after you. What? Didn't you see it? Oh, she was grand. Such a success. The other two listened to him with their mouths open. At length they burst out laughing. He, delighted, thought himself very wonderful. Hey, you believed it all? Well, why not? It's Nana who arranged the marriage. Besides, she's one of the family. The two Hugons passed just then, and Philippe made him desist. Then, as men, they talked of the marriage. Georges became very incensed with La Faloise, who related the story of it. Nana had indeed saddled Mifa with one of her former lovers for a son-in-law, only it was untrue that she had had Dagonet to see her the night before. Foucarmont incredulously shrugged his shoulders. Did anyone ever know whom Nana had to see her of a night? But Georges angrily replied with a, Sir, I know, which made them all laugh. Anyhow, as Steiner said, it was a very peculiar state of affairs. Little by little the refreshment tent was becoming crowded. They moved away from the bar without separating. 
La Valois stared impudently at the woman as though he thought himself at Mabille. At the end of a path they were greatly surprised on beholding Monsieur Venot engaged in a long conversation with Dagonet, and some very poor jokes amused them immensely. He was confessing him. He was giving him some advice for the first night. Then they went and stood in front of one of the open doors of the drawing-room, where some couples dancing a polka were steering their way amidst the men who remained standing. The candles were guttering from the breeze coming from outside. When a couple passed, keeping time to the music, it refreshed the heated atmosphere like a gentle puff of wind. "'By Jove! They can't be very cold in there,' murmured La Faloise. Their eyes blinked on coming from out of the mysterious shadows of the garden, and they drew each other's attention to the Marquis de Choix, who, standing all alone and stretched to the full height of his tall figure, overlooked the bare shoulders around him. His pale face appeared very severe and bore an expression of haughty dignity beneath his crown of scanty white locks. Scandalized by Count Mifa's conduct, he had publicly broken off all connection with him and affected not to visit at the house. If he had consented to appear on this occasion, it was on account of the earnest entreaties of his granddaughter, whose marriage, however, he disapproved of in indignant language against the disorganization of the upper classes by the shameful compromises of modern debauchery. Ah, the end is at hand, Madame du Jonquois beside the fireplace was whispering to Madame Chanteroux. That hussy has so bewitched the unhappy fellow. We, who used to know him so staunch a believer, so noble. It appears that he's ruining himself, continued Madame Chanteroux. My husband has had a note of his. He lives now altogether in that mansion of the Avenue de Villiers. All Paris is talking about him. Really, I cannot excuse Sabine either, though we must admit that he gives her a great many causes for complaint, and, well, if she also throws the money out of the window. She does not only throw money, interrupted the other. Well, as they are both at work, they will reach the end all the sooner. A regular drowning in the mire, my dear. But a gentle voice interrupted them. It was Monsieur Venot. He had come and seated himself behind them as though desirous of being out of the way, and leaning towards them he murmured, Why despair? God manifests himself when all seems lost. He was peacefully assisting at the downfall of that house which once upon a time he had governed. Ever since his sojourn at Les Fondettes he had quietly allowed the undermining to go on, fully aware of how powerless he was to cope with it. He had accepted everything. The Count's mad infatuation for Nana, Faucherie's close attendance on the Countess, even Dagonet's marriage with Estelle. What mattered those things? And he showed himself more supple, more mysterious, entertaining the idea of influencing the young couple, the same as he had the now disunited one, knowing that great disorders lead to great devotions. Providence would have its hour. Our friend, continued he in a low voice, is still animated with the best religious sentiments. He has given me the sweetest proofs. Well, then, said Madame de Jonquois, he should first of all make it up with his wife. No doubt. Just now I happen to have the hope that their reconciliation will not be long in coming about. Then the two old ladies questioned him, but he became very humble again. They must let heaven accomplish it in its own way. His sole desire in bringing the Count and Countess closer together was to avoid a public scandal. Religion tolerated many failings when appearances were kept up. At any rate, resumed Madame de Jonquois, 
you ought to have prevented this marriage with this adventurer. You are mistaken. Monsieur Dagonet is a very worthy young man. I am acquainted with his ideas. He wishes to cause his youthful errors to be forgotten. Estelle will bring him into the right path, you may be sure. Oh, Estelle, disdainfully murmured Madame Chantereau, I think the dear child is quite without any will whatever. She is altogether so insignificant. This expression of opinion caused Monsieur Venot to smile. However, he did not explain himself respecting the young bride. Closing his eyes, as though to withdraw from the conversation, he again hid himself in his corner behind the skirts. Madame Hugon, in the midst of her absent-minded weariness, had overheard a few words. She joined in, and as she addressed herself to the Marquis de Choix, who had come to greet her, thus concluded with her tolerating air. "'You ladies are too severe. Existence is already so bad for everyone. Eh, my friend?' We ought to forgive a great deal in others, when we wish to be ourselves worthy of pardon. The Marquis remained embarrassed for a few moments, fearing an allusion to himself. But the good lady had so sad a smile that he soon regained his composure and said, No, certain faults deserve no pardon. It is by such complacences that society totters on its foundations. The ball had become more animated than ever. Another quadrille gave a kind of gentle swing to the floor of the drawing-room, as though the old house had staggered beneath the commotion of the merry-making. Now and again, in the mixed paleness of the faces, there stood out a woman's countenance, carried away by the dance, with sparkling eyes and parted lips and the full light of a chandelier shining on her white skin. Madame de Jeancroix declared that the Count and Countess must have been out of their senses. It was madness to squeeze five hundred people into a room that could scarcely hold two hundred. Why not have the contract signed on the Place du Carousel at once? It was the result of new manners, Madame Chantereau said. In her younger days such solemnities took place in the bosom of one's family. Now one must have a mob, the whole street being freely allowed to enter. Unless one had such a crush, the entertainment would be considered quiet and uneventful. One advertised one's luxury. One introduced into one's abode the very scum of Paris and there was nothing more natural if such promiscuousness ended by corrupting the home. The two ladies complained that they did not know more than fifty of the persons present. How was it so? Young girls in low-necked dresses displayed their bare shoulders. A woman wore a golden dagger stuck in her chignon, whilst the body of her dress, embroidered with jet-black beads, looked like a coat of mail. Another was being smilingly followed about, her skirts so tight-fitting that they gave her a most singular appearance. All the luxury of the close of the winter season was there, the world of pleasure with its tolerations, all that which the mistress of a house picks from her acquaintances of a day, a society where great names and great infamies elbowed each other in the same appetite for pleasure. The heat was increasing. The quadrille unrolled the cadent symmetry of its figures amidst the overcrowded rooms. "'The countess is stunning,' resumed La Valoise at the garden door. "'She looks ten years younger than her daughter.' By the way, Foucarmont, you can give us some information. Vendeuvre used to bet that she had no thighs worth speaking of. This affectation of cynicism bored the other gentleman. Foucarmont contented himself with replying, Consult your cousin, my boy. He's just coming this way. Yes, that's an idea, cried La Faloise. I'll bet ten louis that her thighs are good. 
Faucherie was indeed just arriving. As an intimate friend of the house, he had passed through the dining-room so as to avoid the crush at the doors. Taken up again by Rose at the beginning of the winter, he now divided himself between the singer and the countess, feeling very wearied, not knowing how to break off with one of the two. Sabine flattered his vanity, but Rose amused him more. The latter, too, entertained a genuine affection for him, a tenderness of really conjugal fidelity, which grieved Mignon immensely. "'Listen, we want some information,' said La Valoise, squeezing his cousin's arm. "'You see that lady in white silk?' Ever since his inheritance had given him an insolent assurance, he affected to poke fun at Faucherie, having an old spite to gratify, wishing to be revenged for the banterings of the time when he first arrived from the country. "'Yes, that lady who has a lot of lace about her.' The journalist stood on tiptoe, not yet understanding. "'The countess,' he ended by saying, "'Just so, my boy. I've bet ten louis. Are her thighs good?' And he burst out laughing, delighted at having succeeded in taking down a peg that fellow who had once amazed him so much when he asked him if the countess had a lover. But Faucherie, without showing the least surprise, looked him straight in the face. "'You idiot!' said he at last, shrugging his shoulders. Then he shook hands with the other gentlemen, whilst La Faloise, quite put out of countenance, was no longer very sure of having said something funny. They stood conversing together. Ever since the races, the banker and Foucarmont had joined the set at the Avenue de Villiers. Nana was much better. The Count called every evening to see how she was progressing. However, Faucherie, who merely listened, seemed preoccupied. That morning, during a quarrel, Rose had deliberately told him that she had sent the letter. Yes, he might go and call on his grand lady. He would be well received. After hesitating for a long time, he had courageously made up his mind to come. But La Faloise's stupid joke had upset him, in spite of his apparent serenity. What's the matter with you? asked Philippe. You don't seem well. I? Oh, I'm all right. I've been working. That's why I'm so late. Then, coolly, with one of those unknown heroisms which unravel the common tragedies of life, he added, With all that, I've not paid my respects to our hosts. One must be polite. He even dared to joke and turning to La Faloise said, Am I not right, idiot? And he made a passage for himself through the crowd. The footman was no longer bawling out the names. The Count and Countess, however, were still near the door conversing with some ladies who had just entered. At length he reached the spot where they stood, whilst the gentleman he had just left on the steps leading into the garden stood on tiptoe to have a good view of the scene. Nana must have been gossiping. The Count does not see him, murmured Georges. Attention, he's turning around. There, now they're at it. The orchestra was again playing the waltz of the blonde Venus. First of all, Faucherie bowed to the Countess, who continued to smile, serenely delighted. Then he stood for a moment, immovable, calmly waiting, behind the Count's back. The Count that night maintained his haughty gravity, the official bearing of a high dignitary. When at length he lowered his eyes towards the journalist, he exaggerated still more his majestic attitude. For some seconds the two men looked at each other, and it was Faucherie who first held out his hand. Muffa clasped it. Their hands were locked one in the other. Countess Sabine smiled in front of them, her eyes cast on the ground, whilst the waltz continued to unroll its saucy rhythm. "'But it's going splendidly,' said Steiner. 
are their hands glued together asked Foucarmont, amazed at the length of time they remained clasped an invincible recollection brought a rosy blush to faucherie's pale cheeks he again beheld the property room with its greenish light and its odd assortment of things smothered with dust and Mufa was there holding the egg cup and taking advantage of his suspicions now Mufa no longer had any doubts it was a last shred of dignity collapsing faucherie relieved of his fright seeing the countess's evident gaiety was seized with a desire to laugh it seemed to him so comic ah this time it is indeed she exclaimed la faloise who stuck to a joke when once he thought it a good one there's nana over there look she's entering the room shut up you idiot murmured philippe i tell you it is she they're playing her waltz she comes and besides she had a share in the reconciliation dash it all what you don't see her she's pressing them all to her heart my male cousin my female cousin and her spouse and calling them her little ducky darlings they always upset me these family scenes estelle had drawn near faucherie complimented her whilst she looking very stiff in her pink dress watched him with the surprised air of a silent child glancing also at her father and mother degonet too heartily shook hands with the journalist they formed a smiling group and m venot glided behind looking tenderly on them enveloping them all with his devout meekness happy at beholding these last defections which were preparing the ways of providence but the waltz still continued its voluptuous whirl it was an increase of the wave of pleasure overtaking the old mansion like a rising tide the orchestra swelled the trills of its little flutes the rapturous sighs of its violins beneath the genoa velvet hangings the gildings and the paintings the chandeliers gave out a lifelike warmth a light as bright as sunshine whilst the crowd of guests reflected in the mirror seemed to increase with the louder murmur of the voices Around the drawing-room, the couples which passed with arms encircling waist amidst the smiles of seated women accentuated the shaking of the flooring. In the garden, the ember-like glimmer of the Venetian lanterns lighted up the dark shadows of the promenaders seeking a breath of air along the walks, as though with the distant reflection of a fire. And this trembling of the walls, this ruddy cloud, was like the blazing of the end in which the ancient family honor fell to pieces, burning at the four corners of the home the timid gaieties then scarcely beginning which one april evening fauchery had heard ring with a sound of breaking glass had little by little become emboldened maddened to burst forth into the resplendency of that entertainment now the crack increased it attacked the house and gave warning of its approaching destruction amongst the drunkards of the slums it is by the blackest misery the cupboard without bread the craving for alcohol eating up the last sticks that corrupted families reach their end here over the downfall of these riches heaped together and set fire to at one fell swoop the waltz sounded the knell of an ancient race whilst nana invisible but hovering above the ball with her supple limbs polluted all those people penetrating them with the ferment of her odor floating in the warm air upon the wings of the saucy rhythm of the music it was on the night of the wedding at the church that Count Mufa appeared in his wife's bedroom, which he had not entered for two years past. The countess, greatly surprised, drew back at first, but she preserved her smile, that smile of intoxication which now never left her. He, very much embarrassed, could only stutter a few words. 
Then she gave him a little lecture. But neither the one nor the other ventured on a complete explanation. It was religion that required this mutual forgiveness, and it was tacitly agreed between them that they should retain their liberty. Before going to bed, as the countess still seemed to hesitate, they discussed business matters. He the first talked of selling les bordes. She at once consented. They both had great want of money. They would share the proceeds. That completed the reconciliation. Mufa experienced a real relief in spite of his remorse. That day, too, as Nana was dozing towards two o'clock, Zoe ventured to knock at the door of her bedroom. The curtains were drawn, a warm breeze entered by one of the windows in the still freshness of the subdued light. The young woman got up a little now, though still rather weak. She opened her eyes and asked, Who is it? Zoe was about to reply, but Dagonet, forcing his way in, announced himself. On hearing him, she leant upon the pillow and, sending the maid away, said, What, it's you? On your wedding day? Whatever is the matter? He, not seeing clearly, remained standing in the middle of the room. However, he soon got used to the obscurity and advanced forward in his dress clothes with a white tie and gloves, and he kept saying, Well, yes, it's I. Don't you recollect? No, she remembered nothing. So he had to crudely refresh her memory in his jocular way. Why, your commission. I've brought you the hansel of my innocence. Then, as he was close to the bed, she seized hold of him with her bare arms, shaking with laughter and almost weeping, for she thought it so nice of him. Ah, my Mimi, how funny he is. He has not forgotten it. And I, who no longer remembered. So you've given them the slip. You've just come from the church? It's true. You've an odor of incense about you. But kiss me. Oh, more than that, my Mimi. It will perhaps be for the last time. Their tender laugh expired in the darkened room about which there still hung a vague smell of ether. The close warmth swelled the window curtains. Children's voices sounded in the avenue. Then they made merry, though pressed for time. Degonet was to leave with his wife directly after the wedding breakfast. End of chapter 12